All right. Thank you so much, Pastor Dave. Uh, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Bob Irving. I'm one of the pastors here. If I have not met you, and I have the privilege of opening God's Word this morning. Um, I told the first service, it was a little chillier uh, in the first service, so uh, you're, we're glad you're here for this service. Um, uh, I said in the first service, if you get a little chilly and you know you got to get up and you got to kind of do this, uh, we'll either know you're too cold or the Holy Spirit's speaking to you in a very special way. So uh, feel free to do that during this service as well. Um, well, we are excited, as Pastor Day mentioned, to beginning a new series that we're calling The Trials and the Triumphs of Israel's Kings. We're going to be looking at the Older Testament books of First and Second Kings. And I have to tell you, I was looking around for any other churches that were doing series on First and Second Kings. Not a whole lot of people do this, so we are breaking new ground here by uh, looking at First and Second Kings. At least, uh, at least we're, we're gonna, I guess we're going to be trendsetters, so we'll find out how it goes for you. Um, but we heard that there's an election around the corner. You may have heard that too. And uh, we thought it would be beneficial to look and explore uh, lessons on godly leadership from the kings of Israel. In fact, what we'll find is that most of these kings will show us what not to do. Now, you may be sitting here thinking, well, you know what? I'm not a leader, right? I, I don't lead. I'm not a, that's not what I do. Leadership in your mind is for people who are in prominent positions. Leadership is for your boss. It's for your elected officials. It's for your pastors, right? Um, but I want to suggest to you today that this morning that everyone here is a leader to some extent. Everyone is a leader. In fact, listen to this quote from uh, Pastor Claude Alexander. He leads the, the Park Church in Charlotte, and he writes this about leadership. So see if you can find yourself somewhere in here. He says this. He says, there are questions that beg to be answered. There are dilemmas to overcome. There are gaps to be filled, and the challenge is for you to fill them. That is the essence of the high call of spiritual leadership. There is a purpose for your being here at this church. So listen to this. He says, you are meant to answer something, solve something, provide something, lead something, discover something, compose something, write something, say something, translate something, interpret something, sing something, create something, teach something, preach something, bear something overcome something. And he says, in doing so, you improve the lives of others under the power of God for the glory of God. Right? So think about that. Wherever there is a gap in life, he says, a leader is needed. And so if you're sitting here today as a parent or even a grandparent, you are a leader who helps guide your kids. As a team member in your cohort at work, you are a leader working to fill certain gaps. As a church member, there are gaps that you can fill, no matter how big or small, that help to advance the mission of the church. In school, if you're younger, you can lead your friends or you can take the reins on that science experiment. Everyone is a leader at some level of their lives. But what we, what we often think is that leadership is scary. And it is. Leadership is a scary thing, right? That's why many of us don't step up and don't lead in ways that God may be calling us to. In fact, there's a famous scene in the, um, the movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, the first one of the trilogy. And if you're not familiar with the plot, let me just tell you a little bit about it. The plot of The Fellowship of the Ring is, centers around this guy named Frodo Baggins, who is this little hobbit who doesn't think he's a leader either. But one day he finds something called the Ring of Power. It can, it can control things. 
and he's given the task to destroy it and prevent the Dark Lord Sauron from getting it so that he rules over all of Middle-earth, which is the fictional world. And to destroy the ring, Frodo has to take a long, dangerous journey to a volcano named Mount Doom where he will throw the ring into the lava and destroy it and save the world. And in the middle of this journey, as the challenges are mounting, Frodo looks at his companion, the old wizard Gandalf, and he laments his situation. He says, I wish the ring had never come to me. And Gandalf looks back at him and famously says these words. He says, so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And what Gandalf is saying is that we need to push forward in the midst of trials and temptations. And fellow Christians, we have to say that we are living in such a time. right? In fact, some days living in America might feel like you're in the middle of the Lord of the Rings. Division exists around every corner, whether it's in government, which is bitterly divided, with an election around the horizon, with riots in the streets, with an invisible virus around us. In the church, there are difficult decisions about the way forward, and many godly people disagree about next steps. Right, And then in your family, you're given the unenviable task of navigating a challenging school schedule, which causes many of us to look up and shout, I wish COVID had never come to us. Like Frodo said, right? <laughs> I wish life was easier. Well, so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for us to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. And the time is for God's people to step up, to fill in the gap, and lead in our spheres of influence. And so today what I'd like to do to open our series is to talk about some principles of godly leadership. Now throughout our series, we're going to look at many examples of kings who made poor decisions and prophets who called them to repentance. And we're starting today with this complicated figure of Solomon. His life teaches us three principles of godly leadership that we're going to look at. The first principle is godly leaders love God. Second, godly leaders guard their hearts. And third, godly leaders trust the true king. Love God, guard your heart, trust the true king. Now, before we look at those, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your goodness and your grace in our lives, even when things don't seem good. Lord, I pray for all my friends who are here, who are watching online, that you would give us motivation to step up in ways we never thought we could step up before, Lord. Give us the uh, supernatural ability to lead in ways we never thought that we could lead, Lord. And would you just speak to our hearts this morning? Speak to my heart, I pray, even as I deliver this word. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So as we begin 1 Kings, let me give some quick background for context. Uh, First and second kings are, if you've never read them before, are historical narratives, which means they tell the history of God's people, Israel, and they are preceded by the books of first and second Samuel. And in first and second Samuel, uh, they mainly tell the story of King David, right? Well, the greatest of Israel's kings. And at the beginning of our story this morning, at the beginning of first and second Kings, we find King David in his old age. 
His golden years have been characterized by rebellion and strife because one of his, his oldest son, a guy named Absalom, fought back against him and was eventually killed. And so now it's time for another son to take the throne. And despite some conflict, Solomon is David's chosen successor. So in 1 Kings chapter 2, David offers some fatherly challenges to his son at the end of his life. He says this in 1 Kings 2, verse 1. It says, When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. All right, now, put yourself in this scene. Okay, if you, if you are not very familiar with the Old Testament, you probably know the story of David and Goliath. And so you're picturing David as this young whippersnapper who takes the, the slingshot and takes down the giant. But in this scene, we're talking about old man David right here, right? right? It's probably taking all of his strength just to speak as he talks to his son. He's old, he's on his deathbed, and these words are his last will and testament to his son. This, this right here, this is the end of an era. And what does he say? He says, be strong and show yourself a man. And you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be strong and show yourself a man? Verse 3, he says, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. So godly leaders love God. And in these verses, David tells Solomon what it looks like to display a love for God. And the first thing he tells him is to obey God's word. Obey God's word. In other words, David is saying that Solomon will be strong and show himself to, a, show himself to be a man if he obeys the Mosaic Covenant. So the law of Moses, which is spelled out in the first five books of the Bible, tells Solomon how to live. Now, the phrase statutes and commands refers to specific instructions God gives, such as prohibitions against idolatry and murder and adultery and coveting. Just think the Ten Commandments. But on the other hand, he says there's rules and testimonies, and those refer to case law, which, which, which includes rules for offering sacrifices. And as we'll see later on down the road, Solomon has some problems with all of these uh, things that David is mentioning here. But here's what I want us to focus on right now. It's, it's David's heart as a father. As a father. Now, if you're a parent here today, what are the last words you would want to say to your son or daughter? David says, obey God's word. And this is, listen, this is the cry of many Christian parents I know. And sadly, those words are not heeded many times. And through conversations, I know there's many, many parents in our congregation who deeply desire that their children would obey God's word, not because it's about rules, but because obeying God's word is the best thing for you. When your children, does not walk, when your children do not walk in the ways of the Lord, it is natural for you as a parent to feel like you could have led better. Now, on the other side, there's many children who realize later in life that they should have taken their parents' advice. But here's what I often see in the meantime. Often it's children don't listen to their parents because they don't think their parents know what they're going through, right? You think, oh, they're old. They don't get it. They, they didn't live through the time that I'm living in. Because when you're young, you think certain things matter, like, like video game tournaments or likes on social media or which college to get into. And, and 
And those things have a place and a time, but you have to ask yourself, what has lasting value? Because too many children refuse the wisdom of their parents only to realize later that there was truth in those words. So David, the greatest king of Israel, tells his successor, his son, obey God's word. Why? Because then you will receive God's blessing. Obey God's word, receive God's blessing. Look at the condition in verse 4 of chapter 2. It says that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me. This is David speaking to Solomon, saying, If your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Again, and in other words, if you obey God's word, you will receive God's blessing. And every parent wants their children to be blessed, right? Right. David has in mind here the covenant that God made with him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 16. And in that passage, God states that wrongdoing on the part of David's successor will lead to the end of the dynasty. And so later in this book, we'll see that God's hand will be on David's line despite disobedience. But the, I got to tell you, if you've never read it, the rest of First and Second Kings is a bit of a mess, right? We're we're looking at a messy book over the last over the next two months. In fact, there's even tension at the end. Second Kings twenty five. We're still left wondering what's going to happen. The principle is this: obedience brings blessing. Disobedience and sin will bring hurt and pain along the way. Now, you might, you might be sitting here saying, well, listen, David and Solomon, they lived under the law, right? As New Testament believers, we're under grace. And that's true. We are blessed as believers through the obedience and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. But disobedience to God's moral law will still result in pain and devastation in our lives. God gives us the law to protect us from the consequences of sin. When we obey God's word, we prosper. Right? And now that does not mean that there will not be suffering or difficulty in life. It's just not going to be directly linked to your personal sin. Which brings us to the main application of this section, and that's this. Godly leaders pursue the beauty of faithfulness. Godly leaders pursue the beauty of faithfulness. Now, if we're honest, we live in a world that is saturated with the latest and greatest. Our modern era is marketing rich, right? Upgrade your phone, get that new car, repeat that latest slogan. And when you get bored, jump ship and find the latest it thing. The virtue of faithfulness in all things is a lost commodity. There's a wonderful book that was written by Eugene Peterson entitled, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And that was his metaphor for the Christian life. Steady, faithful living that pursues God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is what David is calling Solomon to here. He says, my son, oh my son, don't go chasing after that flashy promotion or that gadget or that girl. Remain faithful to God. So here's my challenge for you this week. Take an inventory of the spheres in which you lead and ask yourself, how can I be faithful to God at work, at home, in the church? When the political conversation becomes toxic or the church is in a dry season, how can I remain faithful to God? 
Because there's beauty in that faithfulness that has been lost in our culture. Our faithfulness to God shows our love for him. So the first principle of godly leadership is that we love God. But the second principle brings with it a warning. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. And you need to guard your heart for many reasons, one of which is criticism. Right? To be a leader means you will make decisions. And sometimes those decisions won't be popular. You'll be criticized. And whether you're a manager at work, whether you're a teacher in the classroom, whether you're a nurse in the medical field or a parent in the home, criticism comes. And some handle this better than others, right? It's never easy. Criticism can lead to a bitter heart, and a leader with a bitter heart is a recipe for trouble. So guard your heart. Now, a second reason to guard your heart is temptation. Temptation. And as a leader, and especially if you are a very successful leader, there will be temptations that darken your door that wouldn't have darkened them any other way otherwise. And by all accounts, we're going to see here that Solomon was a very, very successful leader. So let's just take a survey of Solomon's life, 1 Kings 3 through 10. And by the way, if you are uh, going to be joining us for the series, I invite you to read through the book with us. So we're looking at 1 Kings 1 to 11 today. Go home, read it. I can't cover it all. I'm going to give you a little bit of a summary right here. 1 Kings 3 to 10. Chapter 3, we're told that Solomon was walking with the Lord, and he was given a choice by God. God comes to him, and God says, I'm going to give you anything you want, Solomon. Anything you want. Now, can you just picture if God comes to you and asks you, I'll give you anything you want, what are you going to say? I don't know what are you going to say, but listen to what Solomon says. What does Solomon request? Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind, to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. So again, Solomon could have had anything you wanted and Solomon asks for wisdom. He asks to be able to discern between good and evil. And that wisdom is going to permeate Solomon's reign as king. In fact, you probably remember we just did a series through the book of Proverbs, which was all of Solomon's wise sayings. That was the fruit of this request here. In chapter 10, we learn that foreign leaders are coming to see him just to learn from his wise mind. This guy was renowned all over the world. Solomon was successful. We read in chapter 4 that his wealth was unparalleled. In chapter 5 and 6, we read that Solomon famously builds the temple to the Lord, a place where the Ark of the Covenant could dwell. In chapter 7, he begins his real estate conquests by building an enormous palace for himself. So not only is Solomon wealthy and wise, but and this, this man could pray, right? There's a beautiful prayer in chapter 8 where he dedicates the temple. And then chapters 9 and 10 are just reiterating the themes I just mentioned. To put it mildly, Solomon was the man, right? He was just wise, wealthy, famous, a man who walked with the Lord, at least for a time. And by chapter 11, Solomon was on top of the world. He had everything, everything you could possibly want. And sometimes that is the most dangerous place to be. Because when we are, and this is for all of us here, when we reach the high places in life, it is there that temptation sneaks up on us and we have to be extra strong. There's a reason that Satan takes Jesus up to the high place in Matthew 4 when he tempts him. That's where Solomon is in 1 Kings 11. What's he going to choose? 11, 1. 
It says, now Solomon, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Pause. Now, this right here is an editorial clue. The author is telling us what's about to, it's a little bit of foreshadowing. He's about to tell us what, what's going to happen to Solomon. But I want you to pause here and recognize this is important for us all to take stock in because we have just received a glowing report of Solomon's life, right? Seven, eight chapters where we're hearing about how Solomon is wise, wealthy, he walks with the Lord. And anybody that looked at him from afar would look at Solomon and say, what's going to happen to Solomon could never happen to Solomon. That would never happen to him. Never. And that is when temptation sinks its teeth into us. Solomon loved foreign women. Now, don't gloss over that because some of us are tempted to say, oh, typical, typical, powerful man. Love the foreign women, right? Maybe, maybe that's typical. But there is a warning here for us all, all leaders, because it might not be foreign women that beckon your heart, but there's something. There is something that pulls on all our heartstrings. Success, fame, more money, the picture of a happy family, that prestigious college. What would you do to achieve that thing? Because some of, listen, some of us right here, whether you're here, 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 literally here, here, or you're watching at home here, uh, we're living a First Kings reality, a First Kings 11 reality, and we don't know it. Because along with these women that he married come political alliances in the region. And if you notice the second half of this verse, it mentions all the regional powers of Solomon's day. And many commentators will argue that the reason Solomon married all these women was to make peace with all the other nations. And he, he wanted to uh, avoid the mess that happened at the end of David's reign. He just wanted there to be peace at any cost. So he, he could have married these women partly out of fear because he didn't want to go to war. Well, the writer continues in verse 2. He says, he married these women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For Listen to this. For they surely will turn away your heart after their gods. And that's where the plot thickens, right? Because don't you see right here, it's not really about the foreign women. It's about what they represent. A disobedience to God's law. The God tells his people Israel not to intermarry because he knows that this marriage will lead to a worship of their false gods. This right here is about Solomon's relationship to his God. And surely Solomon knew this, right? Had he already forgotten the words that his father spoke to him on his deathbed? 11.2, the end of 11.2 says, Solomon clung to these in love. In other words, Solomon was all in for these women and their gods. In fact, in verse 4, we are told that he had more wives than he could count. He couldn't get enough of these women and their gods. And that word clung at the end of verse 2 is a sexual term that connotes marriage infidelity. In this relationship to God here. Solomon had broken Moses' command for kings in Deuteronomy 17, where God, God says, the king must not take many wives. Commentator Paul House captures just how far Solomon has gone here. He writes this. He says, in the ancient world, 
polytheists, people who worship many gods, tended to worship gods of nations who had conquered their armies, or at least the gods of countries more powerful than their own. But what's ironic here is that Solomon worships the gods of people he has conquered and already controls. You see? Solomon doesn't need to worship these gods, and he does it anyway. And that's really interesting because we have to ask ourselves, what is Solomon's motivation here? And I think it's at least one of two things. One, maybe it's for peace, right? The thing, peace I just mentioned. Solomon wanted to keep peace with his wives and their countries, and so he worships their gods. How many times have you had an argument with your spouse, and you did whatever you needed to do to keep the peace, Right? That might be what he's doing here. Secondly, maybe it's for pride. That he wants to use worship of these gods as a trophy to show the other nations how much he's controlling them. And we see here Solomon has changed a lot in just one chapter. And the question we got to ask ourselves is, friends, if you were looking at Solomon, you would think it could never happen to him. But could this type of thing happen to us? That our desire to make peace can sometimes override our moral convictions. That if we're successful, our pride can make us believe that we don't need God or we settle for little g gods instead. And so I, I'm just going to ask, what false gods are you clinging to? Money, sex and romance, power. Each of these gods bring with them a worldview and a promise. Money promises safety. Romance promises love. Power promises significance. And these temptations can capture our hearts at any age. Look at Solomon, verse 4 of chapter 11. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. It is dangerous to think and read this story like Solomon was a teenager or a young adult here who had not learned his lessons yet. Solomon right here was well along in years, and so this, this danger can happen to us whether we're young or whether we're old. And there's different consequences. So let me just pause here and say, if you're a young person here today, there's temptations that will come your way. And I would warn you, don't make a mistake that will ruin your future. Don't make a mistake that will ruin your future because too many young people think their actions won't have consequences, but your choices today can alter your trajectory in the future. But if you're older and advanced in years, because you're sitting here saying that's right, those young people need to hear that. If you're older and you're more advanced in years, this verse is a sober warning. Don't forget your first love and ruin your legacy. Don't forget your first love and ruin your legacy. And there's been too many people in the news who, like Solomon, have spent years and decades building up a reputation, building up their own little empire, only to see it crumble and disappear because they became complacent in their old age. That's the warning of Solomon for us. Don't miss the beauty of faithfulness. Godly leaders guard their hearts. And, do, and listen, don't miss the progression here, right? Because at first, we're simply told that Solomon loved foreign women. And so we start to assume he had given in to lust. 
right? But then we learn that his heart, well, it, his heart started to turn from the Lord and we assumed he had given into apathy. So it starts with lust. It leads to apathy. But then we read at the end of the, we read the end of the road in verse six. It says this. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father had done. And again, if you would watch Solomon from afar, you would think it could never happen to him. It could never happen to him, right? Didn't we? We just spent seven or eight chapters hearing about his success and his faithfulness to God. It could never happen to him. Could it ever happen to you? Because it begins with lust, it leads to apathy, and it ends in wickedness. Lust, apathy, wickedness. That's the progression here of temptation. And this is sad. <laughs> this is so Sad. I mean, this is a downfall to say the least. He was at as high as he possibly could get, and he ended, boom, flat on his face. And it has disastrous consequences for the kingdom and for the rest of our series, friends. Godly leaders guard their hearts. But every time I see a leader fall like this, all I can do is weep for them and for those impacted by the consequences of their decisions. See, David told Solomon, love God. And by the end of his reign, we read in verse 7, that he was setting up worship sites in the high places to false gods. Why? Verse 8. So he did for all his foreign wives who had made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. He did this for his foreign wives. In other words, he did this for the things he loved. Lust, apathy, wickedness. What trajectory are you on? And so I'd invite you this week during your time with the Lord, to ask yourself some hard questions. Ask yourself, am I lusting after things that don't please the Lord? And that could be anything. Second, am I apathetic to his call on my life? And third, is, is, is my heart so hard that I am one step away from wickedness? All of us are leaders. And when leaders fall, the aftershocks are felt far beyond us. A few years ago, my friend uh, Peter Pendel uh, gave myself and a number of other pastors a coin, which I keep in my wallet to this day, this big, obstructive, obtrusive coin, um, which winds up ruining my wallet, but I think that's part of the point. Um, keep it in my wallet to this day. And he gave it to us and he said, let this coin always be a reminder for you that if you fall, it doesn't just affect you, but your family and your ministry. There is a wide circle of impact. St. Augustine famously said, we are slaves to the things we love. Solomon loved foreign women. And guarding your heart means you cut off lust before it captures your heart. So godly leaders love God. Godly leaders guard their hearts. But finally, and especially in complicated times, godly leaders trust the true king. Godly leaders trust the true king. King. And what, what I mean by that is godly leaders trust that God is sovereign no matter what. They trust that God knows more than them, and that keeps them humble. Godly leaders trust that God is sovereign no matter who gets elected. Godly leaders lean into God's wisdom when times are tough. And that is very true for all of us today, church. Love God, guard your heart, but most importantly, trust the true king, and that will change the way you lead. Because from here on out, 
In 1 Kings and 2 Kings, the story is complicated and messy. Oh my goodness, is it messy? You're going to say, I can't even believe this is in the Bible. Solomon begins a cycle of destruction and division in the kingdom, and his choices right here don't just affect him. In verse 9, we read God isn't happy. Look at verse 9. It says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Now listen, if God comes to you and speaks to you once, you better pay attention. If God comes and speaks to you twice, wow. I mean, God comes to Solomon, not once but twice, and he says here, Solomon, you left me. Solomon, I gave you my heart and you spit in my face. Solomon engaged in the worst sin of all, idolatry, worshiping false gods, not keeping his covenant with God. And as David said to Solomon, there's a consequence. Verse 11, it says, Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenants and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Because he didn't heed the words of his father David. The kingdom will be divided. And we're going to hear about that next week. The rest of chapter 11 is all about how God raises up adversaries for Solomon. Inner strife begins in the kingdom and eventually there's civil war. Solomon was on top of the mountain and his fall was great. And so as we conclude today, I would just simply ask you, who or what are you listening to? Because Solomon didn't listen to David. And maybe there's somebody in your life who spoke some powerful words to you, and maybe you're not, you're not listening to them, or you forgot the words that they spoke to you. Because this, right, this situation here is no different than where we find ourselves today. And, and this is why I said we need godly leaders of all backgrounds who will stand in the gap in a divided world. I would invite you to stand in the gap and live like God is on the throne. Because my great concern for the church, not just our church, but the church in general, is that we can become so divided on so many issues. It could be politics or mask wearing or regathering strategies that sometimes the church can start to act like it has an autoimmune disease where we start attacking each other, acting like we're each other's enemies. And so let me offer some practical steps to combat this this fall season. The first thing I would say is to refuse to argue on social media. And I know that's difficult and, and it's tempting to do, but it never ends well. Second, extend humble charity to those you disagree with. Because I see too many people willing to demonize others. And what we need to do is resist the urge to not treat people like image bearers of God. And then third third, search the scriptures when you disagree. In other words, any disagreement should be discussed in light of what the Bible says. So search it, don't ignore it. And we can have convictions and we should have convictions, but we all need to agree that God is in control. It's time for the church to stand out for unity in the time of division. And we do that by loving God, guarding our hearts and trusting in the true King. So Solomon's story ends at the beginning of a divisive period. But in the midst of that, we catch a glimpse of God's grace. Chapter 11, verse 12. Yet for the sake of David your father, this is God speaking to Solomon, 
Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it, the kingdom, out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. What you see is that God promises that even though Solomon's broken the covenant, even though he's messed up, God will still keep the covenant with his people. That God in his sovereignty still has a plan for Israel. Because from the line of David, a better king will come. A wiser king will come. Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ came, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he, was, he himself was taken to the top of the mountain. And Satan, the father of lies, offers him the kingdoms of the world if you will bow down and worship him. And how does Jesus reply? Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus Christ was faithful to his father. Jesus Christ did what Solomon did not do. And by his obedience, he secured the kingdom for himself and his followers. Will you follow the example of Jesus or Solomon? I pray that we all become godly leaders who trust in the true king. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace in our lives. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to have the strength and conviction to obey it. Help us to love others as you have loved us. Help us to love you first and foremost, to guard our hearts and to trust you, our true sovereign king, who knows everything before it's going to happen and who is in control of a world that seems like it's in chaos. Be with my friends this week. Be with our church. Be with our world, our nation, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.